Heil och Sal. My name is Erik Storsen and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. This episode, or minisode, ostensibly part two of uh, my ongoing series on Valhalla, was not supposed to be a standalone episode at all. My research has left me with an overwhelming amount of notes and material to work with, some of which I really struggled to find a place for. I think I intended this to become an intro, but I couldn't really juxtapose it with the... with the... archaeological study of the Iron Age elite, which I'm getting into in part 3, where we'll be talking about some really sexy weapon burials and also some overlooked passages of heroic poetry. I've reserved the very last episode in the series for a discussion about the afterlife of Valhalla itself in the modern period, and that could have worked for this as well, but that didn't feel quite right either. And I think the things that I discuss here are simply too important to cut out as well. So I finally decided to just release this as a separate episode in quick succession with the other one. Today we're going to look at some unusually spicy and controversial topics, specifically dealing with the appropriation of Norse heritage in the military, with some tangents on the use of mythological imagery in the far right. Some really great books have been written about that stuff, uh, by Nicholas Goodrick Clark and Tarja Embolan, just to throw a couple of names out there. And these are very important and interesting research subjects, in, in my opinion if you're interested in the shadow side of the modern legacy of ancient Scandinavia. I've avoided talking too much about that on the podcast because it's such an obvious minefield. And you know, it's kind of lugubrious subject matter. I would much rather have an expert come on and talk to me about it or something. Well, what the hell. Brute Norse was never supposed to be comfortable. I'm gonna bite the bullet just a little bit, and in doing so, I will debunk some commonly held, unacademic assumptions about historical Nazi interest in Norse religion that have served to tarnish the image of Scandinavian cultural history. But the main point of discussion will be about the relatively recent developments of the Norwegian military in the past, I don't know, three decades, and its use of Norse heritage, which is directly associated with a topical controversy surrounding Norway's involvement with the US invasion in Afghanistan. As always, I'm gonna try to approach these subjects with as much nuance as I possibly can. But you know, there's gonna be some hot takes in here, probably. right before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Most men of my father's generation had in their youth undergone the traditional Norwegian mandatory military service. I was among the thousands of children whose dad was a member of the Rapid Mobilization Forces. He had a magazine 
a bolt, and a battle rifle stashed away in three separate places around the house. Familiarity with military culture was something I associated with growing from boy to man. Something that was good for individual self-development and as essential to society as having firemen, teachers, and engineers. Looking back, it seems kind of out of character for me, because not only was I a work-shy and solitary child who avoided all personal responsibilities, the main reason is probably because two of my main male role models served in the military at some point in their lives, and somehow their service seemed to articulate rather than erase the eccentricities of their personalities. On a cultural level, military service was there for a reason. The German occupation was vividly recalled, urging us to be better prepared for future events. And don't forget the Cold War, where Norway was a NATO member state living next door to the Soviet Union. And so I expected that I, just like many other Norwegian teenagers, would sooner or later join the army. But when Bark came to bite, I did not end up serving. Not because I refused, but because of timing. It happened to come at a time when the armed forces were undergoing tremendous changes. The mandatory part of military service was more or less dropped, and my unit no longer existed. I figured it was for the best, and went straight to the university instead. The recent paradigm shift of the Norwegian military has been described as a departure from its traditional role as a necessity of national self-defense towards its current position as an instrument of force for Norway's NATO-guided foreign policy. This means eager participation in Western interventionist warfare and peacekeeping operations. With the structure of the armed forces changing, with fewer conscripts and an outward-facing strategy, a disconnect seems to have formed between the increasingly outward-facing military on the one hand and the civilian public, who may still have had an image of Norway as the nation of peace supreme, with the Nobel Peace Prize and tradition of mediating diplomatically. An image that does not quite conform with the reality of Norway's military pursuits, whether it is buying stocks in the arms industry or dropping bombs in Libya. As the US-led war in Afghanistan kept dragging on and seemed increasingly pointless by 2010, the Norwegian public was beginning to question exactly what we were accomplishing by participating in the first place. Media incidents erupted as reports trickle out that Norwegian soldiers were spray-painting skulls on civilian houses with suspected ties to the insurgency. Furthermore, a bit of a dumpster fire erupted in 2010 when a men's lifestyle magazine gave a report from the front lines, quoting a soldier who said that fighting was better than fucking. But even that was nothing compared to how the fire escalated when a Norwegian tabloid released a video showing soldiers of the 4th Mechanized Infantry Company of Telemark Battalion rallying around Major Rune Venneberg as he declared to the soldiers, You are the hunters. You are the predator. Taliban is the prey. To Valhalla! Yeah, I know, it doesn't sound quite as cool in real life. The company's battle cry would become the centerpiece of a debate that came to stain Norway's participation in the war in Afghanistan. This combination of military culture and Norseness had one obvious connotation to the media. And soon, they were leaving no stone unturned for some element of Viking Age symbolism to stoke fears that Nazis were running rampant in the nation's armed forces. Old articles were dug up from the Iraq War, as the news broadcast pictures of jolly soldiers in horned Viking helmets inviting allied troops to dinner in their company tent, dubbed Valhalla. And while the Nazi accusations turned out to be nothing more than guilt by association, 
a torrent of debates washed across the country, questioning not only Norway's presence in the war, but how the country was being represented, and what exactly the troops were doing there. The operation had been presented as though we were just providing support for a peacekeeping mission. But now the public was beginning to have their doubts. An odd circus ensued, where the top brass of the armed forces stood alongside Protestant field chaplains and tabloids and news media, condemning the apparently boneheaded hero worship of the Telemark Battalion, whose official insignia happens to be, literally, a Viking ship. Military officials denied any prior knowledge of such unfortunate tendencies within their ranks. But many of the soldiers themselves had quite a different opinion about that many of which defended not only the slogan, but the wider use of symbolism as a motivating factor that secured group cohesion. Failure to understand this was a failure to understand the nature of their work, which necessitates the normalization of taking lives, and obviously also puts a tremendous strain on the human psyche. The soldiers blamed military leaders for stabbing them in the back, for cheering them on in the field, only to hypercritically chastise them when the cameras were rolling. This could indicate that the Viking-inspired warrior subculture was not quite as marginal as the armed forces wanted the public to believe. Speaking purely subjectively, I think that the most cringeworthy reaction was undoubtedly that of the military chaplains, who were only too eager to provide their hot takes on this seeming spiritual competitor within the military. Some of these argued on a more theological level against how the Afghan public might react if they knew that the occupying forces consisted of idol-worshipping adherents of Odin, simplistically referred to as the Norse god of death. They are clouded by evil, one chaplain said, while another expressed concern about the rituals and symbology, comparing it to a form of jihad in which the Norwegian soldiers were fighting a sort of pagan equivalent to an Islamic holy war which might have been quite problematic, if it were true. These were, as far as I can tell, only fantasies cooked up by the field chaplains themselves without any practical basis in reality. Now, I should say that while this Norse crisis was a point of controversy within the Protestant elements of the military, there were people within that network more capable of nuance than the tabloids might have you think. The media storm also led to more thoughtful discussions about what's described as the emerging warrior ideology of the Norwegian Defense Authority inspiring very interesting ethical and metaphysical debates between army theologians themselves. For example, I stumbled across this essay written by field chaplain Alf Petter Hagesetter, where he argues that the Norse element of modern military culture is not in itself necessarily bad, as long as the army maintains its dedication to Lutheran natural law, which presumes that all humans possess an intuitive sense of right and wrong. But for this common sense to actually act in the service of goodness, it relies on obedience and compassion. He seems to argue that Norse-inspired warrior culture does not have to be at odds with that goal. Nonetheless, polemicism was fueled in part by the assumption that the interest in Norse mythology was a shared trait between the Norwegian army and Hitler's Germany. Like, what do we know about the Nazis in the past? Well, that they really fucking loved Norse mythology, right? This is where I would rather ask why so many people find this connection self-evident. Because looking back at how religion was expressed and used in the Third Reich, it is certainly not their paganism that shines through. The National Socialists called to unify the German churches under the banner of so-called positive Christianity, and Hitler mocked the neo-pagans of his own time. He was popularly depicted as the next Martin Luther, there to complete the German Reformation. Well. 
no rule without exceptions, right? Famously, there were certain divisions of the Waffen-SS who used antiquarian imagery, including specific runes in their uniform. And there is of course the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, who did have some interest in past matters, and indeed rubbed elbows with one eccentric, self-appointed folkish guru by the name of Karl Maria Willigut. The weird part about some of these quasi-antiquarian mystery cults is perhaps that they were not particularly interested in Germanic mythology per se, but latched on to occult and theosophical ideas floating around at the time, including prominently the Blavatskian belief in root races, of which the Aryans, of course, was one. Enter the weird world of Ariosophy, a bizarre proto-New Age religious philosophy merging theosophical ideas with Germanic romanticism. These did occasionally show some interest in Germanic mythology, but usually in very idiosyncratic ways, and with readings that most of us would not really recognize. On one hand, they often rejected Christianity superficially, and then on the other hand, made strange claims like that Jesus was secretly Germanic and that the true religion of the Aryans was some sort of ethnocentric monotheism. Karl Maria Willigut came up with a weird idiosyncratic form of esoteric Christianity called Irminism, which alleged that the Bible was actually written in Germany. This is typical of many so-called pagan folkish thinkers in the early 20th century Germany and Austria, who found it difficult to divorce their nationalism entirely from the Christian tradition, and instead opted to rewrite Christianity into a narrative that suited their romantic nationalist interests. Willigut, who claimed to be the sole heir to a dynasty stretching back thousands of years, described a religious schism among the ancient Germans more than 10,000 years ago, between the Wotanists and the Ermanists. Wotanism is the term by which Willigut basically means pre-Christian Germanic and Scandinavian religion. You know, historical paganism as we might call it. That was not the real religion of the Aryans, but the vulgar bastardization. The real Aryan religion was Irminism. What happened then was apparently that the Wotanists crucified the Irminist prophet of Baldur Christos, who was later appropriated as Jesus Christ to suit the evil agenda of Freemasons, Jews, and the Catholic Church. Hence, it is fair to say that Himmler's so-called guru was less about reviving pagan ideology and more about rewriting Christianity to suit esoteric notions about ancient Aryans. And even there, we're probably just barely scratching the surface of just how bizarre some of these philosophies were. However, to the question of whether these ideas had any mainstream support in Nazi Germany or even within the Nazi elite, most scholars would definitely tell us absolutely not. The reality is that the OG Nazis' interest in occult and pagan themes is a gross exaggeration. A great book about this subject is Nicholas Goodrich Clark's The Occult Roots of Nazism, which really sort of debunks the notion that the Nazi mainstream had any real interest in paganism and the occult at all. In fact, all sorts of alternative religious movements, including neo-pagan ones, suffered suppression under the Third Reich. Hence, even when you look at the Norwegian fascists during the Second World War, it is not their paganism, but their immense Protestantism that really sticks out. The Norwegian Nazi party under the German occupation co-opted not the polytheism of our Viking ancestors, but our national saint, Olaf the Holy, portraying themselves as the best thing to happen since the Christianization of Scandinavia. 
and why not? We're talking about two countries in which the majority of the population were church-going Christians of the Protestant persuasion, who had absolutely no interest in reviving the pagan religion anytime soon. In the Norwegian translation of the infamous marching song SS Marchert in Feindesland, used by, well, the SS, the lyrics were localized to make reference to Viking raids for the sake of an imperial, expansionistic tone and the inner mythology of the Quisling government, with its strong anti-Catholic sentiment. It is true that they relied somewhat on Viking imagery, but the main thing that separates them from more earlier expressions of perhaps more moderate romantic nationalism in Norway is perhaps most of all their chauvinistic tone. It's not as if this was the first time that Viking imagery was invoked to further Norwegian patriotism. And certainly it was not paganism itself that they found the most palatable. I could not find any substantial use of Valhalla by the regime during German occupation, probably because of its staunchly Christian policy. However, I found some close parallels to the more general notion of war memorialization. The party, so-called National Rally or National Samling, besides using the Viking Age cemetery at Borre as a fairground, sought to establish Stiklestad as a sort of nationalist cult site. The Battle of Stiklestad is supposed to have been where Olaf the Holy died the martyr's death in 1030, and is officially recognized as the moment where the Kingdom of Norway was Christianized. When they talked about Stiklestad in propaganda, the Quisling regime uses the term Valplass when referring to it, which is highly interesting in the context of war memorialization. The Val in Valplass is obviously the same as Valhalla, and occurs with some frequency as a term referring to the battlefield dead in Norse literature. We might say that Valplass literally means corpse place, or just battleground, but it's a flowery and artificial way of doing it clearly intended to make the audience see it in a certain light. In the literature of these Norwegian national socialists, Saint Olaf, the patron saint of Norway, is frequently presented as a sort of spiritual precursor to the regime, which is due to complete what they like to call Olaf's tanken, or the Olaf idea, and lead Norway to its promised fate. So yes, a very interesting use of Norse medieval heritage, but not really what they're usually accused for. The notion that National Socialism was driven by some kind of Germanic pagan undercurrent seeking to revive Norse mythology may have been comforting to many people in the post-war period because it sweeps the Christianity of the Nazis under the rug. Which of course creates a comfortable distance between the average God-fearing Joe and the blood-drinking crypto-heathen occultists who committed the Holocaust. To suggest that Nazi atrocities are better understood through their supposed fascination with Norse mythology is absolutely absurd. I don't mean to compare, but it also diverts attention from the things that Germany shared with other Western empires, namely their hard-on for ancient Greece and Rome, which was the most obvious inspiration for the whole Nazi aesthetic. Not that there's any obvious correlation between ancient Greece and Rome and the ongoings of Germany in the 1930s. Well, okay, so what about Wagner, for instance? With Wotan and the Valkyries and all of that jazz. Well, Wagner is more of a German phenomenon than a Nazi phenomenon per se and tying him up with the Nazis is not entirely fair either. Wagner, commonly considered the Nazis' favorite composer, was actually far less popular in Nazi Germany than he had been at the start of the Weimar Republic. So we might say that Wagner is much more emblematic of our image of the Nazis than he was important to the Nazis themselves. There was also some interest in the old high German Nibelungenlied in the Third Reich, which again should not be mistaken for an interest in Norse mythology or culture. I actually looked for specific references to Valhalla in Nazi Germany, 
Instead, I found a bunch of stuff from the German Empire up to around the First World War. But weirdly, not always in a military context. And I was surprised. I mean, I actually expected the Nazis to lap that shit up. But they didn't. Anyway, we're going to talk about some of the German non-Nazi uses of Valhalla in the last episode of the podcast. And while we're still on the topic of Nazis and ancient Germanic culture, it's also interesting to note that when the Germans used Arminius, for instance, the ancient Germanic prince who vanquished the Romans at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, they seemed to do it to stir anti-Napoleonic sentiments where the French were depicted as these imperial aggressors, just like the Romans had aggressed upon the peaceful ancient Germanic tribes or whatever. But when it was convenient for the Third Reich to do so, the image they invoked to articulate their political aspirations was not necessarily that of the Germanic tribes of ancient times, but the good old SPQR, right down to the Roman eagle. The term the Third Reich, of course, refers to the idea that Nazi Germany was a successor of the Holy Roman Empire, which in turn saw itself as the successor of the Western Roman Empire. Anyway, I know that all of that is kind of beside the point. The invocation of the pagan scapegoat had the unfortunate side effect of mystifying Nazi spirituality, which was, in real life, a lot more banal and bland than people like to give it credit for. So what about the disproportionate amount of neo-pagan sentiment in the modern far-right? What we're talking about is what some scholars call the cultic milieu, countercultures that already see themselves as outside of society and therefore are likely to adopt imagery that society rejects, often leading to very heterodox and strange combinations of concepts and ideas. When we're talking about counter and subcultures in the so-called cultic milieu, this does not necessarily mean that all of these are political extremists necessarily, and that's actually a valid critique against the term. There's nothing inherently sinister about being interested in offbeat ideas and quirky things. But what I'm gonna say is that mainstream culture made it really easy for a lot of these people to adopt the symbols of Norse mythology and ancient Germanic cultures the moment we started stigmatizing any interest in the Germanic and Norse past. It's not that there was no element of romanticizing the ancient past in national socialism and fascism, for surely there was, a lot of these aspects have been grossly exaggerated to suit a narrative that increases distance between us and them, and a sense of plausible deniability to the question, could regular people ever be capable of doing the stuff that they did? To say that they aren't is a comfortable lie. The reality is much more terrifying. Mobs are dumb as shit. I'm sure you've seen that picture of that crowd doing the Hitler salute, and there's just one guy who's not doing it. Everybody thinks that they're that one fucking guy. Most of them would not be that guy. Membership in the party skyrocketed the moment that the Germans landed in Norway. Once the war was over, everybody and their grandmother was part of the fucking resistance. People loved their bandwagons. The most dangerous part about exaggerating the connection between historical Nazis and Norse mythology is not just that it fools us and overlooks actual central elements to the movement, but that it mystifies them and makes them look cooler than they actually were. It also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, thereby also tainting the subject matter of these romanticizations through sheer guilt by association. The fault here lies just as much with those people who are playing the blame game as the people who are guilty of the appropriation itself. Let's say if somebody shits all over your toilet. Do you throw it out and buy a new one? No, you break out the fucking brush. If you got issues with how something has been depicted in the past and you actually care about that shit, then take it and use it in a better context, man. If not, you're just talking the talk. 
If you want to talk about the hijacking of Norse symbols, you first have to ask yourself why most of us don't use those symbols to begin with. Now let's finally get back to the subject at hand, Valhalla, and its place in the modern mythos. I've translated a small fragment of an obituary that was published in a certain newspaper in April 1945, right at the end of World War II. It goes on for quite a while, but you'll get the gist from just these few lines, and it goes like this. <clears throat> May the sun shine once again, and the flags flutter in the wind, as a symbol for the whole world. A great chieftain has gone to Valhalla, but his ideals and principles will never die. In hindsight, it kind of sounds like something that the Nazis might have written for Hitler, no? But actually, the chieftain referred to in this uh, obituary is uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And this was in the Norwegian-American newspaper Nordisk Tidende, which was based out of Brooklyn. However, just a few pages across, in the very same issue, we find yet another mention of Valhalla. This time, under the mocking headline, To Valhalla! referring to the accidental killing of a prominent Norwegian Nazi by the occupying German soldiers. It's difficult to imagine that both of these authors expected the subjects of their respective texts to share the same fate. You know, Roosevelt and this random Norwegian Nazi crushing IPAs next to the Allfather. These two seemingly schizophrenically opposed views of Valhalla are in fact two constituents of its modern dialectic. One is Valhalla as a rhetorical device for the promotion of cults of personality, a way to praise famous and accomplished dead people, and in the other case we find Valhalla as parody and farce, playing on the popular image of the pagan Nazi. And that is exactly where the aforementioned major, Rune Venneberg, found himself when his battle cry became the center of attention of that whole media circus. And how did he respond to his critics? Well, he basically told them to blow it out their asses, persistently defending the warrior ethos as a healthy and necessary aspect of the Telemark Battalion, which happens to be the country's only exclusively professional military unit. To an outsider like myself, it was kind of like watching the unveiling of the Emperor's new clothes. How could anybody avoid noticing that the Norwegian armed forces are saturated with references to Norse mythology, medieval kings and heroes? Every officer I've ever had an in-depth conversation with prided themselves in knowledge about Norse military trivia, and military historians love attributing the roots of the Norwegian military conscription to similar systems that were already in place in the Viking Age. The news media might rightfully point out that the Telemark Battalion dubbed their company tent Valhalla during the last Iraq war but neglect to say that such references exist everywhere within the Norwegian military system. For example, Valhalla happens to be the name of the on-campus pub of the Royal Norwegian Naval Academy, where it's run by the Academy's Cadet Association, which itself is called the Valkyrie, founded in 1898. An organization whose nefarious activities include fundraisers for the treatment of children's cancer, and organizing events for the elderly. The army also has a number of fraternal organizations and quasi-secret societies inspired by Norse culture, complete with uh, internal mythology, initiations, and hazing rituals. These exist, as far as I can tell, mostly for the fun of it, and obviously to encourage group cohesion. So during Valhalla Gate, you can understand that I was rather puzzled, because in my mind, the military invoking the symbols of its culture just seemed like the most natural thing in the world. 
And that is probably what we could have expected from the military in its traditional sense, which justifies itself by claiming the interests of the nation as its main focus. However, the new military outlook was focused on the state and the support of state interests. You see, there's a slight difference between nation and state, hence a shift from the patriotic demands of the past towards universal human rights as its main legitimizing principle, officially stressing Norway's Christian and humanistic heritage among its core values with no mention of warrior culture whatsoever. Interestingly, in parallel with increased participation in interventionist warfare abroad, while the heads of the armed forces denied it, scholars have pointed out that the presence of a warrior subculture within the Norwegian army, where the term warrior culture is actually self-applied, has been a practical constant since the dawn of the 20th century. While some have even said that it has been deliberately articulated as a side effect of military operations abroad, where a hyper-masculine warrior culture can be harnessed to full effect. In many ways, this is also emblematic of the awkward and often undecided relationship between the nominally peaceful modern Norwegian social democracy and our Norse heritage, which is not entirely irrelevant because it served to legitimize the Norwegian nation-state. This case study obviously shows that Norse heritage forms the source of many conflicts of interest. The state is in an odd situation where it benefits from a phenomenon, in this case the weaponization of cultural heritage, in a way that it refuses to openly endorse, resulting in a crisis of identity almost bordering on chronophobia, where ancient heritages are literally feared. When the combatant invokes the image of Valhalla in his war cry, are they doing so literally thinking that this is where they will go? In the case of the modern soldier at least, this is probably not the case. Valhalla is a symbol, and the purpose of that symbol is to establish a sense of community and shared fate between the soldiers. And the reason why Valhalla is such an effective symbol to this exact purpose is precisely because Valhalla is not a paradise in the Christian sense. Or, at the very least, that seems to be how it is perceived. There are things to say about the possible connection between the Christian heaven and Valhalla, but I will not say them here. You're going to have to wait until next episode. But it could be argued that what Valhalla can offer that heaven does not is a sense of community between the living and the dead. Military lifestyle necessitates certain rites of passage that separate the soldier from their regular civilian lives. So Valhalla is not in that sense the destination they're planning to go to necessarily, but a state in which the shared fate of the warrior is apparently articulated. And unlike the Christian heaven, this community consists of both the living and the dead, as those who dwell in Valhalla are conceptualized as continuing their military lifestyle in an elevated, mystical, ethereal form. When outraged reporters ask whether these soldiers literally believe in Valhalla, the answer is probably similar to what might happen if you asked someone from the Bronze Age whether they believe in God. Novel, monotheistic concepts like faith simply have no currency here. They probably would not understand the question or why the petitioner thinks that faith is relevant to the equation. Because what the Bronze Age man and the soldier have in common is the conviction that it's not about what you believe, but what you do. It's an interesting appropriation, one that probably goes to the very core of why Valhalla might have been of interest to the Iron Age warrior elite in the first place, because the notion of Valhalla puts emphasis on the things that the living and the dead have in common, and maybe we could expect that some such notion would be expressed in Viking-era funerary custom, or traced in the archaeology 
of the Nordic Iron Age, which we shall be looking at in the third part of our meandering series on Valhalla. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brudnors podcast. Where we work backwards into the future. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support Brudnors, you can click a link in the zone of spillof. To check out a Brudnors Patreon or the Teespring shop. Brudnors will be back soon. For yet another episode of Over Series on Valhalla.